a question for you. Who do you trust with your work? Who do you trust with your work? Whatever it is that you're working on, it can't be down just to you to bring it out into the world. You're going to need help. You're going to need to trust others. You have to find the right champions, people who will play their necessary parts in creating and refining and sharing whatever it is that you're building. As a writer and an author myself, it took me a while to find the right partners for my books. I mean, I started trying to self-publish by myself, and that was hard, and success was limited. I had a so-so experience with a fancy New York publishing house. They turned out not to be the best partners for me after all. But eventually, I found my way to Page Two, a company based in Vancouver, and their model is hybrid publishing where I have access and rely on the expertise of a publisher, but I maintain control and have the final say on key things like the title, the cover, and in fact, the words inside. I'm like the executive editor. Page two has been behind my last three books, and they're already deeply involved in my next two. These are the people I trust. These are people who understand what I'm trying to achieve. And these are people who have my back. So who has your back? Who do you trust with your work? Welcome to Two Pages with MBS. This is the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Now, page two, who I was just talking about, has only one other real rival in the hybrid publishing market. Javon McCormick, my guest today, is the CEO of Scribe, that rival as well as being on the board of Conscious Capitalism. He also works with the Started Up Foundation, where students pitch their entrepreneurial ideas for a chance at 25,000 bucks and the opportunity to collaborate with the best-in-class people who can help them turn their ideas into a business. In other words, it's Shark Tank without the sharks. So this is Javon, you're getting a sense of the man, but his first exposure to entrepreneurship isn't what you might expect. My dad was a black pimp in, in 1971. And when I say pimp, he was a real pimp. He put women on a street corner. They sold their bodies. My dad took, took every dollar. Javon's mom, who happens to be white, was abandoned as a baby and then raised in an orphanage. Uh, when she turned 17 years old, they gave her a small suitcase, $20, and said, good luck to you, there's the world. And she had never been outside of those four walls. She she didn't even know what a, what a stoplight was. So uh, unfortunately for her, you know, one of the first people she met was my quite a bit older, well-dressed, fast-talking father. And so, you know, my, my dad was a pimp. My mom was a prostitute. Separated from his mom and one of 23 kids that his dad had fathered, here was Javon's experience of growing up. I was raised in, you know, extreme poverty, U.S. poverty, because poverty outside this country is a little bit different. But, you know, poverty nonetheless, I was in and out of juvenile prison three different times, sexually uh, abused by one of my dad's prostitutes. I was abandoned in a house for, for almost a month with three of my half-brothers and sisters. When he was 15, he was assessed at school. I was testing on a, a fifth and sixth grade level. And so needless to say, fast forward, I never graduated high school. I got a GED, never went to college. So... That's a bit of the origin story, but I, I went on to teach myself how to invest in the stock market and did, did pretty damn well. That's where the majority of my money was made. Um, worked in payday loans, mortgages. I was the, had the absolute honor to be the president of a software company that we sold uh, off to Accenture. And here I am now, CEO of a, a publishing company. And, and as I like to, to wrap it up in joke, I was the president of a software company. I can't write code. Now I'm the CEO of a <laughs> publishing company and I can't tell you an advert from an adjective and I damn sure can't spell. So God bless America. <laughs> that, is, that is quite the story, uh, Javon. What's, what's the gift from your childhood? Oh, the, the, I, I, oh man, I really appreciate that question. No one's ever asked that. They, they, they don't put it that way. Every, people always ask, oh, oh, you, you had every reason to fail. You had every reason not to succeed. And people would totally understood. And I go, no, yeah. that's bullshit. I had every reason to succeed because if you can right. make it through all that, oh, the rest <laughs> of this is pretty easy. So the right. gift was my childhood itself and in the, in the sheer mm. chaos and in, in being able to know 
there's a, a completely different side to this country that most people will never even know it exists yeah. and and just navigating that that chaos the um the the environment the the stress it, it, that was the gift who was your first role model Devon? who stood for something different than the chaos it, it's it's interesting michael um when we say role model, I believe most people, when they hear role model, they think of a positive influence, someone oh. they aspire to, maybe um, that they look up to, or maybe they want some of their attributes. And for me, it took me years to say this, but if coming straightforward, my first role model had to have been my dad. You yeah. know, he, you know, the things that I learned from him. You know, not not necessarily all positives, but but I learn you you can learn through negatives. You can learn, sure. okay, I don't want to be that. I want to do this different. Mm. But some of the the things that he exposed me to, you know, my, my my dad was the first person who really showed me what entrepreneurship was. I, I didn't even know what that word meant until I was 29, 30 years old. Mm -hmm. But then when I, I look back, when I was nine years old and I was out with my dad collecting money from prostitutes. I first thought to myself, you know, we went, Michael, we went to the first prostitute and she, she stuck through a, a massive stack of money. And, and I remember her asking, Hey, can I come in now? I made my count. And my dad in the most loving way said, no girl, get back out there. You're on a roll. Keep going. I'll come back around to get you. And he even, he even finished it off with, Hey, when I come back, you can pick where we go to dinner. Like that was a bonus right. or something. Right. And then we went to the, the next lady and she slid through the window would look like three dollars and my dad lost it he called yeah. her every foul derogatory word you could possibly think of and as we drove off i remember thinking to myself huh i'm, I'm nine i'm in the front seat we, we just finished collecting money from prostitutes and i remember thinking i wonder if i was nicer to the prostitutes and they got to keep part of the money could mm -hmm. i have more prostitutes in volume Therefore, I'd make more money because I'm right. nicer. They get to keep part of the money. They'd want to work with me. And, and then I thought, ooh, well, competition <laughs> because a lot right. of pimps are going to be mad because their women are going to want to come work with me. But I was nine, and that was my first right. real view into how do I scale this? How do I do it better? And more importantly, right. how do I put people first? Right, culture and strategy. Yeah. You're, you're playing with the, the, the twin DNA of what a business is. And totally. seeing how, how these things can, can work together. You, you know, what's funny, Michael, real, real quick there. Um, you know, when I say my dad was a pimp and he put women on a street corner, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, many people look at my dad as this, the disgusting human and you know, okay, that's, that's fair. But if you look up the definition of a pimp, the definition mm. is a man who exploits a woman for financial gain. Right. And so I explain to people, okay, if that's the definition of pimp, a man who exploits women for financial gain, yeah. then the greatest pimp of all time was Hugh Hefner. Right. And in so many people, when I say that, they're ready to push. Oh, no, that was different. It was a company. It was, you yeah. know, no, 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 no. He exploited women for right. financial gain. Yeah. And especially when you look at a lot of those young girls that went out to California aspiring yeah. to be an actress, whatever, and they got crumbs for putting their naked bodies in a magazine. Yeah. He exploited women for financial gain. Yeah. There's also more subtle ways of exploiting women than, you know, sex or, you know, naked performance. There's all sorts of, we could just articulate through that all, to all sorts of companies within capitalism, full stop, <laughs> around who's exploiting whom here, you know. Right, right. Javon, tell me what your name means to you. Because I first met you as JT, and I now yeah. am calling you uh, Javon. So what is a name to you? I, you know, I appreciate that. Man, Michael, you're coming with the, the, the questions, man. I, <laughs> I, I've done like hundreds of podcasts and no one's asked. So, so this is going to be interesting. And, and I say this with the utmost respect. I don't want people to, you know, throw stone me after I say this. But my, my, my name takes on a very interesting dynamic because – when I was a kid, you know, my, my name's Javon and, and, but when I was a kid, so my mom named me, 
So mm. people always think, you know, they say, oh, you have a black name. Well, my white mom named me. And, and, right. and what was funny is she found the name in a French book. She was she was taking a college course and the name is actually French. And she found it in a French book from her from her taking right. a college course. So but what's interesting is my dad would never call me Javon. He mm -hmm. said it sounded like a faggot's name, and right. he refused to call me Javon. He would only call me Jevin. So my dad and in, in his side of the family all know me as Jevin. Yeah. My mom would call me Javon, and then when I hit the business world, I was trying to further my career. I didn't want to be a mailboy forever and push a cart. And I remember trying to get on people's calendars and I could not get a call back. I couldn't get an appointment. You know, Michael, this is back in the early nineties, man, where you yes. had to do work to get work, you know, not like <laughs> now you upload a resume and you hope for the uh, best, you know, back then right. you actually had to follow up, cold call, go knock on doors. Uh -huh. And so you had to do work to get work. And I remember I couldn't get a call back. And then one day a, a, a white gentleman picked up the phone and he said, Hey, how did you get a black first name, Javon, and an Irish last name, McCormick? Right. And Michael, I didn't know my last name was Irish. So I focused <laughs> on that. I was like, oh, man, this is amazing. I just found out my last name's Irish. And, and so, uh, but when I hung up the phone, it hit me. I was like, yeah. oh, that's why I'm not getting a call back. Yeah. So my full name is Javon Thomas McCormick. That day, I started going by JT. Michael, the next week, man, appointments, callbacks, exactly. invites. And I'm like, wow. And it was bittersweet because, yeah. you know, sweet, great. I cracked the code. I got in. Mm. Bitter, I had to edit myself to do it. So, yeah. you know, and then and then I'll, I'll, I'll fast forward here. Uh, right after the George Floyd murder, the, the, the for me, the disgusting virtue signaling that you saw going on you know yeah. we we were arguing you know blackout tuesday on social media whatever and 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 then we were arguing over a syrup bottle a syrup mm -hmm. bottle like what change does that bring but what really jumped out to me is i read a piece that there were only three fortune 500 black ceos at the time right and i was like oh interesting so i went and looked up their names kenneth frazier yeah. marvin ellison roger ferguson and as a bonus, the wealthiest black man in America is named Robert Smith. And I thought to myself, well, those are four very ethnic free names, if you will. <laughs> exactly. And, and so it was in that moment I, I realized, you know, whatever we as people, whatever we're not changing, we're choosing. Yeah. And I was choosing to be part of the problem because I mm. edited myself to fix this broken playbook of corporate America. Yeah. And... I made the decision there. I said, that's it. I'm going to reclaim my name and I'm going to go by Javon. And, and, and I didn't do it for me. You know, I built my career as, as, as JT. Yeah. But I did it for every kid that's got that different last name, that ethnic name, you know, Martavius, yeah. yeah. Laquanda, Rosalia, Juan, Jesus, uh, you know, Ravante. And, mm. and, and my goal was maybe one day, maybe when, when you hit, the, the working world, corporate America, you can work next to a Javon and not just a JT. I love it. What other labels have you had to put down or take up? Who? Man, you know, uh, here, here, here in the States, growing up mixed race, you know, half white, half black in the, in the 70s, Whoa, Michael, not a good look, man. You know, black people didn't like me because I was half white. White people didn't like me because I was half black. Yeah. And, and, and I always try to explain people, explain to people this way. Just think of this dynamic for a second. I've had, because because I'm I'm, I'm lighter skinned, if, if you will, I've had mm -hmm. black people call me white boy. Mm -hmm. I've never had a white person call me white boy. <laughs> so when, when you think about labels and dynamics, growing up mixed race and, and mm -hmm. not having a community to even fit in because yeah. both sides don't like you, um, you know, being called, you know, half breed, Oreo cookie, zebra, color confused, man, it sucked. And, and so, yeah, there were times where I hated being mixed race. There were times yeah. I hated being half white. There were times I hated being half black. And, and it was, uh, you know, you, you, you felt lonely at, at times. You were on this island. But, mm. um, yeah, the, the, the labels that I would take on, you know, um, 
I never, when, when I did hit my, my working career, I never wanted anyone to know my dad was a pimp or that I don't know where my last name comes from or, you know, yeah. 23, uh, yeah, my, my dad had 23 kids. It's like, who, who, who's going to want to hire that guy and, and top it off? I got a GED like, man, I got right. it. It's so yeah, it was, it was tough. But for, for me, I just always believed, okay, keep going, keep yeah. going, just, just keep going. Well, then let me, if you don't mind me continuing to be nosy about this, because it's such a powerful story. What aspect of who you are has been most important to reclaim? Oh, boy. I, I'd say there really isn't a part. I'd have to go with the whole. And what I mean yeah. by that, when I did my first book, I was I was only doing that book as a legacy piece for my children. Mm. I, I I literally I only wanted five copies. I, I never wanted that book to be public. I never you know went, not, not twenty three copies. No no <laughs> five. That was it. Know, and yeah. so um and you know so my great great grandchildren would have a origin. Like okay look I don't know right. before me but I can at least give you this of how I got of my family tree. Right. And so that's what it was done for. And then through a lot of conversation, a lot of encouragement, support, you know, people are like, man, you got to make your book public. You got to. And so we, we made it public and really one of the freeing, the most freeing pages in that book is where it says, my name is Javon Thomas McCormick, half white, half black. I, you know, I got to, GED, never went to college. Yeah. My dad was a pimp. Mom was, and, and because it's, there it is. You know, this is, this is where story. I come from, yeah. to where, who I am. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even with that, this is, this is who I am now. And, and it really, it was freeing because I no longer had to try to hide or worry if you were going to find out, you know, my background of where I'm from. You've um, picked a classic book. To, to read from what book have you chosen? And I picked Think and Grow Rich. I got introduced to this <laughs> book, 19, 20 years old, yeah. life changing. And, and Michael, I'm going to show my age here a bit. Um, I remember first I got introduced to the book. And as you and I talked early, early on, and, and I said earlier, you know, so I, I still to this day, I read on like a, a, you know, maybe, maybe I've got up to a seventh grade level now, but <laughs> so, right. but my reading is not the best. Thank God for the man or woman who created Audible. Uh, right. And but, yeah, I, I, I knew I wasn't going to get through that book. So and this is where my age is going to show. I got the uh, the book on cassettes. <laughs> yeah, the forty eight cassette yeah, types. Yes, so. <laughs> yes. And, and oh man, I wore those cassettes out. I I listened to that uh-huh. that book so many times. But yeah, very very. Uh, influential for me, arguably gave me a, a roadmap, a guide yeah. on success. Do you remember how you came across it or who mentioned it to you? I mean, how I, did you I stumble across I, this? I, I've, I've thought about that numerous times. I have yeah. no clue how the, I got exposed to the, the this yeah. book. And um, yeah, I, I couldn't tell you. It's cool. It's cool when, you know, the seed falls on the on the fertile ground and something magical happens. Oh, um, amazing. So what pages have you chosen? I mean, how did you decide what to read for us? Uh, you know, the, the, the page, I, I picked um, what I would, for me, was the most influential because uh, it, it's pages 220 through 222. Yeah. And the reason why this was very important to me, again, growing up on, you know, welfare, I've pulled food out of the trash can because I didn't have anything to eat. You know, I've stood in line for hours to wait for our, our monthly government assistance. I, I know what it's like to not have electricity and, and water. And and yeah. so for me, there was one specific part here, uh, and it's called the fear of poverty. And that's Beautiful. that's the part because I grew up in poverty that, that really uh, changed so much for me uh, from from the book. Um, well, I'm excited to hear you read. And I just do want to acknowledge, you know, you was like, and before we hit record, you're like, I'm a little nervous about reading because, you know, as you said, you, you don't have as strong a reading skills as you might have. 
And I'm just appreciating you for saying yes to the podcast because we're all richer for hearing your story and hearing what you're about to read. So thank you for that. I, I appreciate it. I, I, um, I'll, I'll own it. Yeah, I've got, I've got a nine-year-old and to this day, you know, when we're reading a book or, you know, she's reading mm. to me and she'll ask me, dad, what's this word? I mean, there are times we have to turn to my wife and my like, babe, what's this word? I, I don't know. And, and, you know, it, it to, to really take that over to, to business and to, to leadership, uh, that's the beauty uh, of leadership is I don't have to have all the answers. Right. I just have to surround myself with people that know all the answers. Right. Well, also, I mean, just as an aside there, you know, there's a disproportionate number of people with dyslexia that lead organizations. Because if you frame dyslexia not as a disability, but as a different type of intelligence, Turns out they have a more visual way of reading the world and a more visual way is one way of thinking about what strategy is. You know, like I see a landscape and I can see passages through the landscape. Um, oh, and there's you, you, there's you a real it. way where that strength is. These, you know, labeled disabilities are actually just uh, strengths and skills waiting to be, find their place. I, I 100% agree with you. It's just, there's a different way of, of, of seeing the, the world, the landscape, opportunities, Mm. Uh, avenues, choices, decisions. So, yeah, I 100% agree with you. Well, Javon, excited to hear Think and Grow Rich. Over to you. There can be no compromise between poverty and riches. The two roads that lead to poverty and riches travel in opposite directions. If you want riches, you must refuse to accept any circumstance that leads towards poverty. The word riches here is used in its broadest sense, meaning financial, spiritual, mental, and material estates. The starting point of the path that leads to riches is desire. In chapter one, we, we, you receive the full instructions for, for the uh, proper use of the word desire. In this chapter on fear, you have uh, complete instructions for preparing your mind to make practical use of desire. Here then is the place to give yourself a challenge, which will definitely determine how much of this philosophy you have absorbed. Here's the point at which you can turn profit and foretell accurately what the future holds in store for you. If after reading this chapter, you are willing to accept poverty, you may as well make up your mind to receive poverty. This is one decision you cannot avoid. If you demand riches, determine what form and how much you will be required to satisfy you. You know the road that leads to riches. You have been given a roadmap which, if followed, will keep you on the road. If you neglect to make the start or stop before you arrive, no one will be to blame but you. This responsibility is yours. No alibi will save you from accepting the responsibility if you fit now fail or refuse to demand riches of life because the acceptance calls for but one thing. Incidentally, the only thing you can control and that is a state of mind. A state of mind is something that one assumes. It cannot be purchased. It must be created. Fear of poverty is a state of mind, nothing else, but it is sufficient to destroy one's chances of achievement in any undertaking, a truth which became painfully evident during the depression. This fear paralyzes the faculty of a person, destroys the faculty of imagination, kills off self-reliance, undermines enthusiasm, discourages initiative, leads to uncertainty of purpose, encourages procrastination, wipes out enthusiasm and makes self-control an impossibility. It takes the charm from one's personality, destroys the possibility of accurate thinking, diverts concentration of effort. It masters persistence, turns the willpower into nothingness, destroys ambition, beclouds the memory, and invites failure in every conceivable form. It kills love and assassinates the finer emotion emotions of the heart discourages friendship and invites disaster in a hundred forms, leads to sleeplessness, misery, and unhappiness. And all this despite the obvious truth that we live in a world of overabundance of everything the heart could desire. 
with nothing standing between us and our desires, excepting lack of definite purpose. The fear of poverty is, without a doubt, the most destructive of the six basic fears. It has been placed at the head of the list because it is the most difficult to master. Considerable courage is required to state the truth about the origin of this fear, and still greater courage to accept the truth after it has been stated. The fear of poverty grew out of man's inherited tendency to prey upon his fellow man economically. Nearly all animals lower than man are motivated by instinct, but their capacity to think is limited. Therefore, they prey upon one another physically. Man, with his superior sense of intuition, with the capacity to think and to reason, does not eat his fellow man bodily. He gets more satisfaction out of eating him financially. Man is so vicarious that every conceivable law has been passed to safeguard him from his fellow man. Of all the ages of the world, of which we know nothing, the age in which we live seems to be one of one that is outstanding because of man's money madness. A man is considered less than the dust of the earth unless he can display a fat bank account. But if he has money, never mind how he acquired it. He is a king or a big shot. He is above the law. He rules in politics. He dominates in business and the whole world about him bows in respect when he passes. Nothing brings man so much suffering and humility as poverty. Only those who have experienced poverty understand the full meaning of this. It is no wonder that man fears poverty. Through a long line of inherited experiences, man has learned for sure that some men cannot be trusted where matters of money and earthly possessions are concerned. This is a rather stinging indictment, the worst part of it being that it is true. The majority of marriages are motivated by the wealth possessed by one or both of the con contracting parties. It is no wonder, therefore, that the divorce courts are so busy. So eager is man to possess wealth that he will acquire it in whatever manner he can, through legal methods if possible, through other methods if necessary or expedient. Self-analysis may disclose weakness, which one does not like to acknowledge. This form of examination is essential to all who demand of life more than mediocrity and poverty. Remember, as you check yourself point by point that you are both the court and the jury prosecuting attorney and attorney for defense and that you are the plaintiff and the defendant also that you are on trial face the facts squarely ask yourself definite questions and demand replies when the examination is over you will know more about yourself if you do not feel that you can be an impartial judge in this self-examination call upon someone who knows you well to serve as a judge while you cross-examine yourself you are after the truth. Get it no matter what the cost, even if it may temporarily embarrass you. The majority of people, if asked what they fear most, would reply, I fear nothing. The reply would be inaccurate because few people realize that they are bound, handicapped, whipped spiritually and physically through some form of fear. So subtle and deeply seated is the emotion of fear that one may go through life burdened with it never recognizing its presence. Only a courageous analysis will disclose the presence of this universal enemy. When, when you begin such analysis, search deeply into your character. There you have it, sir. Beautifully read, Javon. Thank you. Thank you, you sir. I, mean, I, yeah. I, broke, I broke a small sweat there. <laughs> <laughs> We'll call on the makeup people to powder you down and you'll be, you'll I be just fine. <laughs> I, there's, there is a lot there in what you read to us. And I'm curious to know what, you know, what was the chord of truth in that for you? Uh, yeah, there's, there's great fear in, in poverty. You know, yeah. you, you, you realize early on, sometimes as a kid, you didn't always know you were poor. You, you mm. knew you couldn't do certain things. 
uh, and you knew when you had money, there were other things you could do. And so, so for us, you know, when, on those small occasions where my mom had maybe a little extra, if that was really such a thing back then, um, you know, maybe she took me to get a, a hamburger and, mm. and it was little things like that. Or maybe I got a certain box of cereal and, yeah. but it all came by way of, you know, financially. So, so, you know, what, what's interesting is, as well, I had the incredible dynamic of my mom and I growing up in poverty and electricity being cut off. But then when I was with my dad, my dad had, you know, the brand new Cadillac. He was always dressed impeccably. I'd see stacks of money. Um, so I got to see, you know, some of the things of, you know, even with money, it would, so much mm. of that was true. Regardless of how my dad got the money, so many people, quote unquote, respected him and, and looked yeah. at him because he had money. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I really came to, to see money brings power, brings influence, it brings change. And, and then my, my last piece on this, even, even to this day, uh, growing up, my mom and I always had to wait on the monthly welfare check. We had to wait on the bus because my mom didn't know how to drive. And even if she did, we didn't have a car. And, you know, when we would go to the laundromat, you know, we had to put our things in black bags and go sit on the bus stop. And then when you got to the laundromat, you had to wait for a washer dryer to open up. Yeah. So, so much of my childhood was spent waiting mm -hmm. as I got older and got money. And I realized if you had money, you don't have to wait. Michael, man, I'll, I'll valet park at Walgreens if they have it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, how did you... I'm making a presumption here, but how did you find your peace with money? Uh, when I when I lost it all in uh, in 2007, if you, you we all remember those are, uh, that are old enough remember the mortgage crisis, and uh, and I was deep in in the mortgage crisis, and I I lost all my money. I I, I tell people I was negative broke, and <laughs> you know because I had to borrow money from my my stepdad, my best friend to pay my rent. I was negative right. broke, and and but I remember the the critical piece in that was. When I was broke, I had to look in the mirror and I had an out loud conversation, much like the, like what you heard, that self-examination. I, yeah. I remembered some of this book and I remember saying to myself, wow, okay, so you've had a million dollars and now you don't. But when you had the money, you had the same, excuse my language, Michael, you had the same shitty character. You, yeah. you didn't know how to treat women. You couldn't hold a relationship to save your life. You, you were horrible. You were a monster. You were just foul in relationships. And I remember I had to say out loud, I'm like, man, you're just like your dad. And that hurt. That stung. Yeah. And, and that where the, the dynamic of the money came in was it didn't ha matter how much money I had. I mm. still had a horrible character. If I was broke, still horrible character when I had money still horrible character. Yeah. What's dangerous is people who get money and still have a horrible character. So right. many people are more accepting and welcoming of them just because they have money. Your new book is about modern leadership. I'm wondering how you see fear taint the way leadership, the way corporate cultures happen at the moment. Oh, it's, it's the whole, oh, I appreciate that one. Um, it is for, for me, it is so evident where fear has now come into this and, and I'll give you a direct example of this. Mm. So think of Warren Buffett. We all know who Warren Buffett is. So mm -hmm. Warren Buffett is 92 years old now. So, and then let's go all the way down to the 22 year old startup founder. When it comes to leadership, when it comes to CEOs, there is not a CEO or leader walking the earth who has ever experienced all that's going on right now at the same time. <laughs> right. So you could take Warren Buffett and yes, Warren Buffett, you know, he was alive back in the fifties and sixties. So he has seen racial tensions and, you know, Warren Buffett has seen Roe versus Wade come and go. And, yeah. and he has seen, you know, the Vietnam war, uh, interest rates, inflation, dot com bust, uh, mortgage crash. He has seen it all, but, He's never seen it all at once. And right now right. we're going through a time period where, you know, there, what I call the old playbook, you had so many, and again, excuse my language, you have so many fake ass broke playbook leaders 
uh, running this old playbook. And guess what? It yeah. ran out of pages. There was no mm-hmm. pages in the in this old playbook of, oh, how how pronouns in emails? How do I, what? Wait, wait a minute. Ra- racial tint. George Floyd. Yeah. What? And, and you know, chief diversity officers and, 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 oh my God, what's going on? And so they're, they're, they're stuck. You know, they're, your, your MBA from Wharton didn't teach you this, did it? Okay. And, and so, because now you've run this playbook and, and think about this, so much of corporate America over the last, let's call it 30 years was built on having this piece of paper for entry. Right. Right. So all of these people went out and got these degrees. So that was kind of your key to entry. So you fit the playbook. Well, now we're finding out there's a ton of educated idiots out there who have this piece of paper that is damn near worthless. Yeah. And you have these fake leaders who don't know what to do because this playbook doesn't work anymore. So in many ways, you know, fear has crept up because now mm. they're struggling. How? What? Oh my God. Um, I am the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. I'm a white guy in my mid 40s or 50s. I'm supposed to say something about George Floyd, but I had to have no clue about black mm. people, that environment, nothing. And so this individual looks to their left, looks to the right, and oh my God, our vice president of communications is also white. Uh, our COO is okay. What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to say? And and yeah. so you're seeing fear has crept in mm. big because you, we we are truly Lewis and Clark. This is a leadership expedition right now that you're starting to see. Okay, who are the real leaders? Right. So as a CEO yourself, do you feel you've moved beyond fear, or do you just have a a particular type? of relationship with your fear that allows you to, to be a modern leader? It, it's interesting. You, you even heard it said in, in the, the piece that I read uh, mm. for me, and, and I do believe a lot of this has to do with my upbringing and, and uh, the chaos that I grew up in. What I have found for me in most cases when people use the word fear they are quote unquote fearing something that may not ever even happen. And so for me, I always take that into account if I feel fear coming on because it may not even happen. So why do I, why am I going to fear something that may not even happen? Right. And, and so for, for me, I, I have, I guess maybe taught myself and then by way of how I grew up, there's very little that, that I fear, um, you know, it, mm. it's, um, it, and, and a lot of that, like I said, is, is how I was, was, was raised. I, I remember, right. here's one for you, Michael. I remember the first time I went to juvenile prison and, and if you notice, I'm very specific. I say juvenile prison. Yes. We as a society have tried to lessen that blow of how we treat kids. Uh, juvie, juvenile detention. No, that shit's juvenile prison. The only difference is they're under 18, but the yeah. way you're treated in there, it is juvenile prison. Mm-hmm. And the first time I went in, I got put into solitary confinement and they shut the door, turned off the lights. And I was in there for 23 hours straight in the dark. And my dad was in England. My mom was in Texas. No one knew I was in there. That was fear. I feared mm-hmm. that, oh my God, no one knows I'm here. What's going to happen? How am I going to get out of here? What am I going to do? And so, you know, my, my, level of fear, if you will, is, is just a bit different from, you know, take, take yeah. my kids. They'll never have that fear, you know? <laughs> so, you know, even if they go to juvenile prison, they're like, okay, well, dad's going to come get us. <laughs> so, right, you right. know, they're never going to have that, that fear that, that yeah. I experienced. So in business, um, I, I don't, I don't work in that type of, uh, fear, yeah. if you will. How do you teach that though, to the people you lead? Like you lead a company. I'm, I'm going to assume that not everybody's had quite the tumultuous upbringing that you've had. Not everybody's been thrown in solitary for 23 hours in the dark. So we, if I was part of your organization, I have a more regular relationship to anxiety about the future and anxiety about my fear. 
I mean, can you train people to think differently about fear or do you have to actually have gone through the kind of somehow gone through the trauma and then somehow have processed the trauma that you've gone through to get to where you are today? I, I personally believe, Michael, you you will never, my, my, my belief, you can never really relate unless you have the lived experience. And, and mm. so let, let's take me out of it for a second. I'll give you a great example of this. Um, my, my, my kids go to private Christian school. And right. I, I remember the, the church saying they, they were going to do a, a mission trip. And, and I'm like, nah, I'm not interested. And they're like, what? Why not? Why not? And I said, I, I don't need to go to another country to do a mission trip. There, there are people here in this country that are in, in poverty, that need help, that need mm. uh, assistance. And, and But where I'm going with this is, let's say we do this mission trip and we go to this third world country. So we show up, you, myself, my, my children. Okay, we're all there. And we see how bad it is. We see how the, these individuals are living. And, you know, our heart goes out to them. We're there to assist. Well, here's the thing. Just because we see it, we're never truly going to understand it because guess what? In the back of our head, we know in two weeks we're going home. I'm going back to that gated community. And, and so mm -hmm. you never really relate to it. You you see it, it. It hits you in the face if you're really open to it. But you can never, unless you have the lived experience of, oh, yeah. shit, this is my life. This is every day. And yeah, you never can. So for me, then it comes down to choices and perspective. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is I learned early on life is choices. When mm -hmm. I wake up in the morning, I have a choice. I can be positive. I can be negative, but it's my choice. And, and we all have that. I don't care if you're on death row. When you wake up in the morning, you have a choice. How are you mm -hmm. going to view the day? And so what happens in my opinion, especially here in this country, uh, so many people, and this was in there as well, responsibility, accountability, two words missing from society right now is we're quick to blame someone else for our shortcomings, for yeah. not being successful. So when you say, how do I, I teach coach mentor? Uh, I, I teach through my mistakes, things that I mm. made mistakes. Uh, I, I share with people because, because to your point, everyone wants to say to me, Oh, well, Javon, I don't have your background. I don't come for you. And I said, look, surprisingly enough, when things get uh, tense, I don't actually look at my own childhood. I go, I can look at what's going on in the world right now and said, you know, but it's perspective. Here's an example. Right now, there's a single mom walking 1,100 miles from Honduras with her six-year-old and her eight-year-old trying to get to the, the U.S.-Mexico border to try to get into this country. And what's really sad is she doesn't know how to swim. Her kids don't know how to swim. So she makes it to the river, and now she's thinking, how am I going to get across this? And, and because she so uh, uh, desperately wants to create an opportunity for her herself, her children, she's willing to risk going across this river just mm. to get into this country. Now, here's the, the, the really the mind-blowing piece of this. Let's say she makes it a, a, across she, and her kids make it across. Here's what you get. Great. You got in. You don't have a job. You don't speak the language. You don't have a place to live, but you got in. And so when I, I share with people is, look, on my worst day of being sexually molested, I've never had to face that. I was born here. I have a responsibility to be mm. successful because there are people literally dying daily trying to get into this country to create what I have. I'm already yeah. here. Javon, do you, I'm curious to know how you balance the need for individual responsibility and accountability. And Think and Grow Rich is really strong on that language, which is like, you need to do this work. You need to figure this out. You need to understand fear. You need to make the choice. And the fact that um, there are people who can be making all the right choices and they still struggle and they still don't break through. And there's some degree of support or community or structure around them that's required to lift them up. I'm not sure even what my question is. It's like, to what extent? To what extent can you not do this all alone? Um, 
Michael, uh, for, for me personally, and, and, and I know there are going to be people that disagree and, and you know, mm-hmm. throw out some reason or excuse. You know, it was just last week I was out in uh, Palm Springs. I was at the, uh, I, I, I was named Entrepreneur of the Year by Ernst & Young. Oh, and nice, I nice met, met a lady out there and she was from India. And she, she came up to me and she's like, oh my gosh, your, your, your backstory is amazing, blah, blah, blah. And so I, I you know, I asked her, I, I, you know, about her backstory and she goes to share with me. She goes, oh yeah, I'm from a small village in India. When I turned 19, my parents, all they could afford was a one-way ticket for me to come to the United States. And she said, so it was a, you know, small village, but half the village walked with her to the train station. Mm-hmm. They put her on the train and she got to the airport and she had this one way ticket into the United States. When she landed, she had to navigate and figure out what to do. She had Everything. a family yeah. here. She's 19 years old and here she is in New York city. And so when, when, when I hear, you know, support system and it, it I look at look at how many immigrants have come to this country with thirty five cents in their pocket, two hundred dollars, yeah. and and you know you look at the the gentleman that owns the Jacksonville Jaguars, the the NFL football team. That guy got here when he got his first job. He was making like a dollar and change, and thought he had you know the world <laughs> just opened up for him. Yeah. And so those type of individuals really inspire me because there was no support system. I mean, yeah. her only support system was her parents bought her a one way ticket to the United States. There you go. Yeah. Yvonne, it's been such a rich conversation. I'm wondering as a final question, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said between us today? Well, first I, I gotta say, Michael, man, you you uh of all the podcasts I've done, man, you you brought out three questions that no <laughs> one has ever asked me. And, and so Thanks. that was that was great. Uh, what what needs to be said? It's it's been said, but you know it's it's a matter of do people want to listen to it? It's mm. been said not on this podcast. It's been said in society. You know, I'll repeat it: accountability and responsibility. There there are things that have just evaded us, and that that we choose not to take accountability mm. or responsibility. And, and I, I live by this: whatever we we aren't changing, we're choosing. And what happens is we have turned into a society where we want everything right now. We have no patience. There's very little consistency. And and I'll leave it at this, Michael. You look no further than the diet industry and the gym industry. We're coming up on December and you and I both know what happens at the, and and, and this blows me away. It'll be the first week of December Mm -hmm. and you'll start hearing people tell you, Oh yeah. New year. I'm starting back. And I laugh. I'm like, okay, so you're going to wait three weeks right. to start back when yeah. you could actually make progress now. Yeah. And, and then here's, what's really sad. If we need to lose 30 pounds, we're a society that we want to show up at two o'clock and we want the 40, the 30 pounds gone by four o'clock and in very little consistency. And it's the stories we tell ourselves even when you see people, they start on a Monday, they, they, they've been eating clean, their habits are good. And then Friday comes around and they lie to themselves. They say, well, right. I earned this, this, this pizza. I earned it. No, you did. have you lost the 30 pounds? No. <laughs> okay. Then you didn't earn it. And, yeah, and but yeah. we'll, we'll lie to ourselves. And again, you know, we'll, we'll turn around. Oh, well, I come from a family of overweight people. I come from, you know, oh, it's my thyroid. And, and what's funny about this, Michael, is it is it is medically proven only 2% of, of the, the world's population actually has a thyroid weight issue. But right. everyone says, you know, oh, it's, it's my thyroid. And then I'll shut up after this, I promise. When's the last time you, you'll, you'll hear someone show up to the doctor and they'll say, oh, man, I, I can't stop eating pizza. I can't stop drinking soda. You know, I, I sweets. When's the last time someone showed up at the doctor and said, oh, I just cannot stop eating salad, chicken breast and water? Yeah, <laughs> right. It's a choice. You know, I've known Javon for a while. I actually caught him up four or five years ago, just when Shannon was thinking about taking over being CEO at Box of Crayons. And I knew that Javon had taken over from a founder as well when he became CEO of Scribe. 
So I wanted to ask him what guidance he'd have for Shannon and me as we went through our own version of that transition. But four years ago, when I talked to him, I called him JT. That's how he introduced himself to me. And just as I mentioned in the interview, I was glad he was okay with asking me about his name and the way he changed his name. His answer, though, I mean, this really struck a chord for me. And I was choosing to be part of the problem because I edited myself to fix this broken playbook of corporate America. People of color talk, which I'm not, if you haven't met me, talk about code switching, figuring out what face to put on and what game to play so they fit in, so they don't make people uncomfortable or distrusting, so they avoid being othered. Javon's talking truth to power when he talks about having to edit himself to manage the conscious and the unconscious bias of the system. What I wonder about, and I absolutely don't have a good answer for this, is what do I need to do more of, or so perhaps to do less of, to create the safe and vital and repairable relationships that will allow the people I work with to not feel that they have to edit themselves. I'm going to be thinking about that for a while, for sure. If you enjoyed this conversation with Javon, I, I think you might have. Um, I've got two others to recommend to you. One is with Shelley Ashambeau. She is a senior board member, senior executive, uh, quite an influencer in Silicon Valley. And my conversation with her is called Weighing the Price of Ambition. And then uh, the other interview is with Minda Hartz, uh, author of a book called The Memo. Um, and that interview is called A Seat at the Table. She works with people of color to help them get represented at senior levels in organizations. If you'd like to find out more about Javon, um, Scribe Media is the name of his company um, or the company where he's CEO. And he has a personal website as well, which is Javon McCormack, J-E-V-O-N-M-C-C-O-R-M-I-C-K.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of this community. Thank you for giving their podcast a review. Thank you for passing on the interviews that you love. My goal is to make this one of your favorite podcasts. Um, we're always open to feedback if you've got it for us, but I will just say you're awesome and you're doing great.